0: This is Dissecting Dragons, a speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeline Vaughan.
1: And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, bringing in dessert, serving up delicious endings against desperate odds.
0: Okay. So uh, let's dive straight in. Now, this episode uh, partly comes out of a personal observation that, that Jules has had because she's very good at those.
1: Um, but it's <laughs> try also... <and> stop
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> Just try and stop me. Um, but also, I believe that it was a little bit inspired by something one of your readers actually said to you about was it Harker and Blackthorne?
1: Um, actually, they've said it on, on certain books in both *Unveiled* and *Harker and Blackthorn*. Okay. Um, this this obviously isn't me having a pop at the reader. I just find sometimes seeing someone else's perspective, especially when it's completely different from mine, mm. quite interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, so basically, I'll, I'll, we'll get into the personal observation stuff in a moment. But mm-hmm. what the reader has said about several books is that they find the ending, or they found the ending of those books, less satisfying. Um, when the villain or creature of the week is billed as an all-powerful inverted commas um, evil entity um, I'm obviously paraphrasing here rather than another mortal creature or a human person Um, the reason for this is if something is really that powerful as in literally that that is considered that powerful then this particular reader felt that none of my characters who are very much human should be able to beat it even with cleverness Mm. which I've I find that quite a binary way of looking at something. And then you're kind of assuming that whatever's been billed about this creature is actually true rather than sort of like weighing it as you go through the text, how much is true, how much isn't, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing because I can totally see the perspective as well. And I think it can sort of come in some, in some areas from seeing over exaggerations of that In fiction you know quite a lot where you know you really are looking and saying okay but actually how are the the characters the protagonists going to win this and it's not actually executed very well Um, and I can I can definitely understand people preferring stories which don't do that but uh, you're right in that there's kind of two sides to that Um, obviously we're bringing this up, as Jules said, this is not to diss the reader's opinion at all. Um, It was just, it's just, Jules mentioned it and I was like that is actually very very a really interesting point because Mm -hmm. obviously everyone's reading experience is going to be very personal and you know the conclusions that they make from that reading experience is going to be right for them. and we but you know because of that because everything is so personal it is really interesting to hear what other readers think about our work absolutely and
1: you know quite frankly unless someone says you've got a major blind spot here with this this one issue and that's very offensive to a particular group of people mm. unless it's something like that i'm probably not going to change how i do my stories because I do spend a lot of time sort of planning structure and things like that. And I know that they work to the best of my, my personal skills at the time I'm writing them. Yeah. Um, so even if I disagree, which, you know, I kind of do because I've made that story, but, mm-hmm. and I do see this, this reader's point at the same time. Um. So, you know, it's all fine. I'm not defending my work because everyone's entitled to an opinion, but it just, it got me thinking that it's quite an interesting quandary because what i think this reader ultimately objects to is that maybe without realizing what the problem is they don't really like the whole triumph against very slim odds type scenario
0: yeah um and again i think there's a lot of kind of reasons why someone might not like that um i actually think that there might be a generational thing that kind of comes into that with I don't know people of a certain age sort of looking at the way that the world is now today and just being like everything's too big everything's too overwhelming Um, and we want stories which feel kind of believable in a time where we feel powerless Um, but yeah it's kind of very very interesting (laughs) Um, and obviously you know having your hero succeed uh, when the cause is desperate and it seems impossible they'll win is absolutely delicious if you do do it right i think yeah absolutely i mean if and
1: the more we think about this and we will do in a minute (laughs) it's basically the go-to ending for certain types of speculative fiction
0: Mm -hmm. yeah however no one wants to eat the same thing every day (laughs) Uh, well there are some people who do uh, yeah most people (laughs) but if we're talking about you know a series of books or films there is definitely a sameness if the creators essentially end each story in exactly the same way um it's the uh (laughs) the dragon ball z (laughs) yeah
1: it does sort of so I mean you do find it in a lot of sort of anime type things but you also find it in like the big action movies and things as well so it's like um anyway this week we're going to look at other ways to create delicious endings against long odds because this is obviously not one way to do it even if there's one go-to way to do it
0: yeah absolutely
1: um, and fair warning, I'm going to be using some of my own work as an example, and obviously Madeline may well do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there will be spoilers if you haven't read all of Unveiled, or have got at least halfway through Harker and Blackthorn.
0: Yes, uh, we will try not to spoilify things from books which are fairly recent, but it is always a risk, so bear that in mind. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so let's begin with the typical success against desperate odds souffle my favorite type of souffle absolutely (laughs) okay so essentially we begin with the scene it's all set the heroes are hopelessly outgunned and the villain's success appears absolutely assured how is a satisfying victory to be had against these terrible odds (laughs)
1: Uh, have you thought, by the way, of like maybe going back in time and doing like the voiceovers for like the 50s sci-fi movies? Because I think you'd be really good at
0: it. Like, actually, this is it. You've caught me. I am a vampire, and that was what I was doing back in the 50s.
1: So you're always looking for an outlet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry for derailing that. Um, basically, one very popular way to sort this initial scenario out is to have the heroes concentrate their attacks on one critical component of the villain's strategy
0: yeah so for example uh battles are fought on multiple fronts in the lord of the rings you know you can't you can't (laughs) move three steps without stumbling into another battle but all of them contribute to drawing the ever wakeful eye of sauron to keep his attention off of sam and frodo as they creep towards mount doom to destroy the ring now technically Frodo fails at the last moment but his earlier mercy towards go um i'm about to say golem golem <laughs> ensures that the ring is destroyed um and it causes a domino effect that collapses Sauron's dominion
1: yeah another example Star Wars A New Hope that's the original Star Wars film for those oldies like me who are listening to this yeah um It does something similar. So the Death Star, a planet-destroying space station capable of faster than light travel, is closing in on the Rebel base. But there's a tiny flaw in the design, so all the Rebel firepower is concentrated on that one weakness. Um, Obviously, it brings in ideas like the Force, etc., and only one person really been able to do it. Um, And despite impossible odds, the Death Star is destroyed by one X-Wing fighter in a very small X-Wing jet.
0: (laughs) Yes. you get the same thing with Stranger Things. Uh, in fact, they, they do it pretty much at the end of every season in one way or another. Um, yeah, they do. <laughs> and in fact, most of the Marvel movies, if not all of them, also follow the same pattern.
1: Yeah. I mean, you may even be thinking of new examples as we speak. You might be wondering what other endings there are when, de- de- when a desperate odds situation has been set up.
0: Um. As delicious as it is, uh, I know that I I kind of gave up with it, but Jules has actually watched every season of Stranger Things and reported back. Um, Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Even though I know it will have the same ending pretty much for every season, I've lapped it up like a cat with a bowl of cream. I've been all over that. Yeah. (laughs) But theoretically, serving up that, I think that's because the rest of the show is so good and it's sort of taps into nostalgia factor because i grew up during the 80s as well Mm -hmm. um so but i have to say that if i do find some of the marvel films a bit formulaic in the way that they bring out tension and they do the you know the final battles and things
0: yeah absolutely Uh, now some of you might be going hold on a second this seems a little bit familiar uh and might be reminded of one of our previous episodes talking about uh story structure and the monomyth and yes those things are related so you can go and listen to that other episode (laughs) (laughs) if you want to as well but certainly i think that that has also informed this kind of ending where it is the absolute odds the hero is laid low they are facing you know it looks like there's just no way that they can win and then there will be one small thing which is particularly makes the difference between them and the villain which allows them to succeed Um, but as we have said you might then go well this is a bit formulaic it's kind of a bit boring but do not fear the dragons have a selection of other sumptuous desserts uh, for your delectation.
1: Yes. Okay. So, on the menu, first on the menu, villain infighting parfait.
0: We're really going for the dessert menu metaphor here, aren't we? Yeah.
1: I'm I'm, going to lean on this. I'm not letting it go. Okay. (laughs) So, Uh, Return of the Jedi serves up this dish in a way that influenced pretty much all science fiction and fantasy creators born in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Even if they hated Star Wars, this will be in there somewhere.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So uh, this is where you have two or more villains who, when working together, could easily defeat the hero. However, a crafty or sometimes a compassionate hero essentially manages to set them at odds with one another. Um, until they are actually far more concerned with fighting each other than the hero, or until one of them eventually sides with the hero. Um, And this can be done in a number of different ways. Absolutely. Uh, But, for this dish, you'd usually need a big boss and then a smaller boss. Now, the smaller boss might be a slightly more sympathetic villain, um, a lieutenant to the big boss, or they might just be a bit of a wild card. Um, this is also where you can get the the sort of the smaller boss actually being the hero's ex friend or lover or something like that, who's been pulled to the dark side and is now yeah. <laughs> kind of being pulled back. Um, now, essentially, uh, if the two villains work together, which they are doing in the beginning, and they coordinate their effort. The hero has no hope of beating them.
1: You then need to sprinkle in a little foreshadowing. So, yes. the villains are not always on the same page. Perhaps the minor boss has pangs of conscience despite loyalty to the big boss. Or they agree about goals but disagree about details. The big boss wants to absolutely burn everything to the ground, and the smaller bosses. Yes, but what are we going to eat if we burn all the crops kind of thing?
0: Yeah. Um, the differences to begin with might not actually seem that significant, but they are always noticeable. Yes. Now, at the climax, the hero either appeals to the minor villain's conscience um, or creates a situation where the villain's differences really comes to a boil. Um, either way, it causes one villain to turn on the other.
1: This then tips the balance and gives the hero a chance. For best flavour, serve with a light garnish of redemption for the lesser villain. So in this instance when we talked about Return of the Jedi, whether you personally feel that Darth Vader is is redeemed at the end of that film or not, Mm -hmm. it does offer him a very slender redemption arc because when basically the Emperor is frying Luke alive with lightning, he calls out to his father to help and Darth Vader remembers that he is actually Luke's father properly remembers what it is to be a father at that moment and sides with him against the Emperor and throws the Emperor down
0: yeah at you, the cost of his own life, At the obviously. cost of his own life. Um, and usually it, it, the, usually it is at the, at the cost of their own life kind of situation. We also see this a little bit with, you know, uh, Bucky Barnes, you know, in the Captain America franchise. Yeah. Um, but another one which is interesting is that sometimes the two villains can almost, can actually really be one person or one person who's got kind of two separate parts and these things are fighting. Now, a really good... Uh, version of this whether you like it or not is the second toby maguire spider-man movie with dr octopus where he actually has a there's a really interesting version of this where essentially he seems to be the only villain but actually there are two villains in operation one is obviously uh dr octavius and the other is the sort of these arms which have kind of gained their own sort of consciousness and basically are affecting him and making him kind of sort of lose his mind um and at first they do seem to be working in tandem with one another uh, but what essentially happens is that ultimately dr octavius is technically the smaller the the smaller boss and he still has within him that level of consciousness. He had that friendship with Peter, he is grieving because he lost his wife, and he doesn't actually want to hurt people. Ultimately, everything he was doing was for the embitterment of the world. And when he realizes and is able to snap out of it, he turns on the main villain, which are these kind of brain-controlling arms, and basically sacrifices himself in order to save the world yeah so there are kind of interesting ways that you can do it and it's not always obvious but it can be very satisfying
1: absolutely which brings us on to the next item on the menu
0: (laughs) i hate you for this name okay
1: uh (laughs) i could have chosen something like spotted dick (laughs) And then we'd have to explain to America what spotted dick is. It's not as bad as it sounds, no.
0: <laughs> Radical oh. tactic change, eaten mess. Eaten mess <laughs> is just, it just sounds like, uh... anyway. Okay, so. <laughs> now, essentially, this is one where, as the heroes deploy their winning tactics again and again, the villains gulp it down time after time without even a hint of indigestion you're really going for this jules you're i'm gonna really beat going this, this metaphor to death and then i'm not gonna bring it back to life and beat it to death again you're gonna beat the eggs of this metaphor okay
1: yes. <laughs> 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 Two can play at that game says madeline Ha <laughs> ha okay
0: essentially um this means that things begin to look very very bleak until the hero realizes it's time to shift tacks and and spike the villain's punch.
1: Yes, Uh, now to set this up, you need an adversary who invites an obvious tactical response. For example, Independence Day, where the invading aliens are so much more powerful and technologically advanced, our tactics are restricted to limited and desperate aerial combat, and running the fuck away um, the important thing is that the tactic is an obvious one here so again if you're thinking something like star trek generations where star trek yeah star trek okay completely brain slide there so star trek the next generation where you've got the um you've got the borg you really are kind of limited to running away a lot of the time because Mm. generally they you might get three shots off which will not destroy a borg cube generally um and then they've adapted and you're left powerless while they're firing at you so it's that sort of um imbalance in terms of power
0: yeah um quite interestingly is that often with this one you will basically see uh the villains taking on an aggressor either the villains taking on an aggressor role and pushing the protagonists into a defensive position and the protagonists then have to switch things around into an offensive position um or the villain actually goading the protagonists into an offensive position uh but in a certain way that is actually not to their advantage. Yeah. So essentially, um, you begin to stir in foreshadowing. Um, and you need to consider that the antagonist has at least one unusual characteristic. So if we look again at Independence Day, uh this is an odd gap in the computer code which is discovered by Jeff Goldblum's character. I love that whenever Jeff Goldblum is like starring in I think we never call him by his character name, it's always I just can't remember. Jeff I can Goldblum. just remember Jeff Oh, it's Jeff Goldblum.
1: Yes. It's like In the Flight, it's Jeff Goldblum playing a character in the fly I can't remember the name of
0: the character. Yeah jurassic park yeah it's jeff goldblum <laughs> thor ragnarok it's just it's jeff goldblum um anyway <clears throat> now this isn't even noticed as a weakness at the time it will just kind of strike the heroes as odd usually um as a kind of a bit of foreshadowing it can yeah. even actually sometimes look like another form of strength um or it can just sort of be some a detail that they completely overlook
1: yeah absolutely Um, allow the mixture to simmer so all seems lost but in the midst of despair the heroes really think about that odd characteristic and what it can mean a new tactic is then devised based on this realization in independence day it's discovered that there is that gap where we can feed the alien tech a computer virus that will cause their powerful ships to fail especially when fed to the mothership
0: yep and what happens is that this new tactic works. Um, and essentially you serve with a topping of how the hero figured it it all out. Uh, now this one can actually go in tandem a little bit uh, with the sort of the with other kind of forms. Um, like for example, you could say with Lord of the Rings, you know, it's the oh well the one weakness he has is if we destroy the ring of power kind of thing. Um, because he's put so much of himself into it but it it, because they know that from the beginning it doesn't it isn't quite the same but essentially with the sort of the radical tactic um you have everybody else kind of causing a distraction usually while a very small team of people have to sneak in (laughs) or change something based on a hunch and the tension is really raised by the fact that they don't really know if this will work.
1: Yeah, you can find it in a sort of heist scenario. And I kind of did something like this with I Rule the Night, mm. whereby nothing M um, could personally do by herself would work against, you know, the dark thing, the yeah. um, vampiric entity that was preying off of Edinburgh, because she wasn't powerful enough to do it. Um, and she also was under a ban, so she couldn't tell other people that she needed help with this. In the end, she went the most roundabout way in order to tell people... She had to tell them without telling them, without there almost being the intention that they could find out. She was relying on them to be clever enough to work out what was going on yeah. while she was in the veil. Kind of setting them up to create a big distraction in order to get hold of the, the original skull, which was a locus point for this creature, yeah. and destroy it so that by the time she had worked out a way of dragging it all the way past the gates of death herself. Um, the skull, which would have kept, given been an anchor point in real life, mm. uh, had been destroyed and it wasn't there anymore. So it was a really convoluted way to do this. Um, weirdly, this is one of the books where uh, this particular reader said, yeah, I didn't find that villain particularly compelling because, you know, they're not they're supposed to be this all-powerful evil thing and it turned out to be just a human that had gone way, way past humanity into being this terrible evil entity and Mm. they shouldn't have been able to beat it. I'm thinking, everything has a weakness, that's the thing. Yeah. It was long odds, definitely.
0: (laughs) um... Yeah, um, but I agree. I think the problem is that I've seen examples of this where it fails and usually it fails when we haven't had that foreshadowing. Um, the foreshadowing really is one of the most important ingredients in this, in this dessert. Um, and if you don't include it, the whole thing does feel very flat, it can feel contrived, um, and it can feel very sort of added on, like you've written yourself into a corner and you don't actually know how to solve it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can. I mean, I think that's almost it's not quite Dex machina because it's not an external force that's randomly shown up and solved everything. Um, But it is kind of of the same ilk whereby if you don't foreshadow it, as you say, then you just have the hero having a realisation with with no run up to it at all like 5 minutes before the massive showdown
0: yeah and the the other key thing is that the hero needs to be the kind of person who could figure this out yeah. or or have a side character you know have a character who is conceivably able to put this together because if you don't, and it's just the hero suddenly goes, oh, this, that, and the other, and it, it feels very unsatisfying, because you're like, how did you know that? And how did you kind of come across that? It's why you get a lot of the time, it's like the nerd character is like, oh no, these things are really fascinating. You know, they've got this, that, and the other, and everyone's like, they're monsters, stop, you know, glorifying them. But because yeah. of the nerd character's absolute fascination, they're the ones who notice the weird thing that everyone else has overlooked. Um, yeah. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense for someone just to notice something when they would not be the kind of person to notice it or wouldn't have the the abilities or the qualities to be able to kind of make that connection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, dessert number three. Baked powerful ally Alaska. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now your ingredients must include a world with a powerful force which doesn't normally concern itself with the petty affairs of mortals so this could be a god it could be an unknowable alien race it could be an inexplicable force of sentient magic it could also just be like a natural phenomena
1: yeah. Um, you need to add your foreshadowing by creating hints that make it conceivable that this powerful force might participate in the struggle under the right circumstances. So perhaps there are really distant myths and legends of the powerful force assisting some, you know, hero of the ages in the past. Or perhaps the hero feels a strange connection to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we've got a-, a good example of this uh, in Avatar, uh where, and I can't say help say the name. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Ewa. Ewa, yeah. So Ewa the Great Mother is an inexplicable force that moves through everything living and both gives life, but also takes it away. Um, but essentially doesn't take sides. Now, Jake is obviously an outsider and he has finally found where he belongs with a species and a world that is not his own. But in order to save Pandora um, and the, um, Omatakaya, yeah, <laughs> He has to fight off the colonising forces of his own people. Now, it does look hopeless, but he speaks to Ewa about the coming fight and what humans have done to their own planet and mother goddess. Um, it looks as if his pleas essentially do go unheard. However, <laughs> Until... just as, <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, just as it seems they're losing the fight... I mean, they put up a good fight, and then obviously they're overpowered because the, this tech is way more sophisticated than than what the Amatikaya have got. Awa um, moves through all the very dangerous creatures of Pandora and turns the tide of the battle. So she literally has almost the plants, the rocks, the the massive predatory birds of the air, the beasts of the forest, and whatever, all rising up and attacking these mechs and things. Mm which turns the tide. Um, So yeah, to sprinkle on a little sweetness of the dish uh, with a moment of the hero bonding with this new power before it goes on its way. And that's the important thing. You cannot keep this powerful ally for the next story or it'll spoil everything.
0: Yeah. Now there are several ways that you can kind of approach this. And you again, you don't actually have to have a sentience behind this power. It could just be the hero actually very cleverly using the environment which is not good or evil it just perhaps every now and again a a volcano explodes or something like that and the hero knowing this and using it to 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 his or her advantage or to their advantage right um you know but the point is that there is this kind of force it is neither good it is neither bad um it is just larger than life um and it can be kind of it can be used cleverly either through cunning or through sort of like making that connection. Uh, But there is this sense of kind of between the hero and this force, this sense of connection. Um, And it isn't always necessarily a force which the hero has even liked before. They could, the hero could have seen it actually as something quite antagonistic to begin with. Um, And a good uh, example of this is actually Thor Ragnarok where they use Surtur at the end to defeat Hell. Yeah. Um, And that is obviously hinted right at the beginning um, and obviously all sort of Norse mythology fans know what Surtur's role is and obviously will understand the reference of Ragnarok. So it was right there from the start um, that Surt really should be playing a role in this. And I think that that kind of worked quite well in that it did sort of go full circle. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so the next one is the sacrifice à la mode. So, uh, watching a hero succeed without cost makes for a less stressful uh, combat style. i can't say that. comestible
1: i'm sorry <laughs> you do
0: this to me on purpose you're like how I can that. i confuse madeline's dyslexic brain today i'm gonna i'm gonna just sprinkle in words like comestible for her <laughs> because i know that she'll look at it and and sort of have a small breakdown uh and anyway sorry so it can be less stressful but after a while no one wants those empty calories So you can spice up the dish by adding a little sourness, uh, essentially a sacrifice, and you can serve it with all the ice cream that you want.
1: So you need something precious the hero can lose, aside from, obviously, all those innocent lives which are at stake. Uh, Perhaps it's a power or ability. Perhaps it's a beautiful city, freedom, or the hero's own life. Whatever it is, the audience must assume the hero will not lose it at the onset of the story.
0: Yeah now when adding a little bit of foreshadowing it's important to work in extra things that the hero has to do to preserve that precious thing or earlier in the story give the hero a chance to win by giving up the precious item but have them choose not to do it either way the hero's choice should feel natural
1: yeah Um, as you simmer towards the climax and when your hero is ready to admit defeat Have them be reminded of what really matters. Usually this is the lives of everyone around them. The precious item is nothing compared to that. And if the villain wins, the precious item will probably be lost anyway. The hero will probably have to convince the others that giving it up is the right thing to do.
0: Yep. At this point, you can garnish and serve. The precious thing is lost or destroyed, but almost everyone else has survived. Um, show them starting anew to avoid a bitter aftertaste.
1: So, I mean, Madeline's just mentioned Thor Ragnarok. Well, they basically they basically lose their home, their home planet. <laughs> they lose everything. Yeah. They lose Asgard. Um, there's also the episode "The Gift" of, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Buffy won you know she's so focused on saving Dawn before the ritual starts that she doesn't really have a backup plan for when it does start. In fact, no one can come up with one. And then her realisation is that well, actually she can choose. She can choose whether her sister dies or whether she does. So she jumps herself. Mm. Um, when that first came out, that hadn't really been done in that sort of show before, and it was a real sort of heart wrenching moment because I don't think anyone really thought that would follow be followed through. Even people like me who are kind of like, oh my god, she's going to kill. She's going to be killed instead. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of thought there would be a last-minute stay of execution, and there wasn't. Yeah. Um, And I I suppose, again, I rule the night where, you know, all through the series, Em's been kind of like, I'm going to balance this psychic Veil Walker bullshit with having a vaguely normal life and a normal relationship with the man I wanted to have a relationship with. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And the only way she can actually defeat the dark thing in the end is by fully embracing entirely what she is and literally going into death and then bargaining with the lord of death who takes her own form um to let her go back under the understanding that she is now basically you know an indentured employee of lord death (laughs) so she does kind of lose the whole thing
0: yeah we also see it sort of in other ones where you'll have a hero who loses their power at the end so in the original um shadow and bone uh the sorry the, the original grisha series not the shadow and bone netflix series but the book series uh, alina at the end spoilers loses her powers her grisha powers um and there is a little bit of sadness there but ultimately she does get her happy ending and and everyone kind of can get on with their lives we also see it in full metal alchemist uh, where again spoilers edward elric at the end loses his ability to do alchemy which is obviously something which has kind of defined him and um, most importantly because it wasn't just something which he developed in order to bring his mother back originally but was something that he had a natural aptitude for from a young age that he actually had very positive things associated with it did feel like a loss rather than a sort of a happy trade um but it was still a happy ending in that he got to be with the woman that he loves he got to have his family everyone got to survive and the world was a better place because of it
1: yeah exactly exactly Okay, so also on the menu, we have Creme of Emerging Superpower, which I really like this one, personally. Yeah. So you'll need a hero with unrealised potential who is relatively untested. Whether you do this with magic or technology, a superpower breaking free or a mysterious artefact.
0: Now, uh, in order to make this one work, you will need to foreshadow by sneaking in clues that the hero can later use to unlock their powers. That's very important. So show the hidden power being used in tiny amounts, for example, Uh, discuss the hero's long lost parents or the powers they had, uh, or talk about a lost powerful device that can't possibly uh, uh, be great uncle albert's pocket watch etc <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, bring to a boil by having the antagonist give the hero a terrible beat down it doesn't look like they can possibly win but just before all is lost they rise back up powers in hand the desperate circumstances may have even been the key the final part of unlocking the powers causing the realization that great uncle albert's pocket watch is in fact the eye of ra
0: can you imagine? Sorry. I
1: know, that would be a hell of a thing, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> now, it's very important that you do not over garnish the dish. If you want to use this again, your hero must not be so powerful that no antagonist could counter them only add enough power for the hero to prevail against the current threat or make sure that the power has some kind of limitation or a cost which means that it can't just be sort of barreled out at every inconvenience.
1: Yeah absolutely so as an example um from my own work uh, in book seven the shadow and the soul mm-hmm. faced by a dragon driven by the priest of a dragon cult with an ability to control the creature um one of the Harker and Blackthorne allies, the person who basically hired them to come out and find out what was going on with his sabotaged
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh workforce, um, he uh this guy Stuart, he's encouraged to embrace his true place as the true dragon tra- charmer. He then releases the dragon and destroys the cult. Um, there's obviously a bit more to it than that, but you know what? You can read the book if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> but, But the whole point is that even though it isn't a main player from the Harker Blacks on Trio who've gone, oh, yeah, we've discovered this power that can sort everything out, they buy enough time. And Rebecca particularly encourages Stuart to say, "Okay, you need to stop being afraid. Stop worrying that you're a little child who can't do it anymore because you're not. You're a grown man. This is there. This has always been there. You just have to own it.
0: Yeah. And uh, wins in that way. Absolutely. I have also obviously used this in the Sons of Thestian um, in the, and spoilers, but it's been out for a while now, guys, so like (laughs) (laughs) um, obviously with Rufus when he's facing off against Zachary, Marcel and Emmerich, when they're trying to take Jonathan back to um, Hermartia uh, Rufus is put in some very dire straits and basically releases his full potential in a very explosive way that almost kills him Um, and in a way which he can't just do whenever he likes because to do so um, and it's obviously very much explored in the second book would be to risk him losing himself Um, it's not something which can just be done at the drop of a hat and it has some pretty severe limitations and some pretty severe kind of a pretty severe mental toll let's just say
1: (laughs) aside from which he would go through clothes at a phenomenal rate
0: he he would if rufus wasn't so comfortable being naked so much of the time uh, (laughs) it would be be a a real real issue issue. (laughs) in fact he's the only character who gets naked in every book um (laughs) just pointing that out okay (laughs) okay uh right the next is the sticky toffin villain appeasement now uh for this one you are going to need a somewhat sympathetic villain who has understandable grievances an ongoing source of pain and an emotival an emotival sorry an emotional i tried to combine the words emotional and motivation and it didn't work an emotional motivation for doing the damage that they are doing
1: Yeah, stir in the foreshadowing by allowing the villain to voice some of their grievances to the hero. Perhaps they explain the motivation after the hero reaches out to them, or they do it without prompting because explaining makes their revenge that much more satisfying. You can keep their ongoing source of pain from the hero for a while, have them discover it at or just before the climax for maximum effect.
0: Yep. At this point, you are going to simmer. So essentially, even though the villain will cause unthinkable damage, the hero can't hate them instead they tend to feel sympathetic towards them uh, now this can cause the hero to reach out to the villain and discover their ongoing pain the hero will then offer a balm for the villain's pain the important thing is that it must be offered unconditionally
1: yeah um, now as an example in i belong to the earth uh, m is basically terrified of haste to start with and She's terrified of him right up until she recognises that most of his terrible actions come out of grief. Um, And since she's recently lost her mother, she feels a kinship with him because of that. She doesn't excuse what he has done, but she recognises that she also can't stand in judgement. She offers Hayes and Kate a deal. She can bring them together if they release Grace and Nick, who they are both possessing at the time. Mm. So instead of forcing them through the veil... You know to face whatever judgment may come she shifts them bet- to the between place where they can be together but do no more harm in the human realm
0: yeah um <laughs> <laughs> now uh, essentially it is the hero's kindness here which saves the day not a force of arms this forces the villain to rethink what they were about to do and ultimately to kind of rethink What's the thing that they really, really wanted? And most of the time it's not revenge, it's something... Notice my pain, isn't it? Yeah, Um, (laughs) yeah. It's a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, And you will serve this uh, as such. The villain will thank the hero, perhaps gruffly, and they will then leave in peace. You can also garnish with the realisation that the villain has suffered um or that the and this can sometimes be served particularly well with the hero turning around to look at the system which created the villain and dismantling it to ensure that no more villains are created because of an inept system which they previously worked for
1: yeah well, absolutely working towards that and i think it's important to say that you don't necessarily have to get to the end of the story and think oh, well, the villain wasn't really a villain at all. It's more a case of, no, they were a villain. They did terrible things. It's kind of a cool story, still murder kind of thing. Yeah. But at the same time, you can understand them even if you don't condone what they do. Yeah. Okay, so final item on the menu, hostage taking pie. <laughs> <laughs> so for those with an appetite for something a little more sour, this dessert is perfect.
0: Yes, so you will uh, need a villain with something important to gain by defeating the hero. Now, in this recipe, the hero isn't merely in the way. Uh, You know, it's not that they're just a bother. They're not a fly that needs to be swatted. They need to be eliminated. Um, Now, perhaps the hero needs to go in order for the villain to to receive the recognition they deserve, or for the villain to get uh, their final kind of sort of reward their goal etc the point is that the hero isn't just an obstacle the hero is the defeat of the hero is the objective
1: yeah now foreshadow this by making the villain go to extreme lengths to preserve whatever this important thing is so for example president snow in the hunger games trilogy keeps the hunger games going to remind the districts every year that nothing not even their children belongs to them and if they rise up they will be crushed this extends to the specific main character, Katniss Everdeen herself, who is a tribute.
0: Now, you will then bring this to boil by having the hero go through literal hell. They are about to lose everything. Perhaps they simply don't have enough power to win the way that they want to, or etc. Then the hero figures out what the villain wants so desperately and threatens to destroy it. So in Katniss's case, she decides to remove a winner from the end of the Hunger Games by having her and Peter take the Nightlock Berries. Now, essentially, this will cheat Snow of his victory and, more importantly, undermine his power and the power of the Hunger Games themselves, which will cause unrest in the capital.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a big gamble and it it's only works because she's willing to go through with what is essentially a suicide pact. Yeah. But she's betting that whoever's on the other end of the microphone will say, no, 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 you can both be winners. So she's already sort of chipped away at, at his authority in that respect.
0: Yeah. Now you will then serve, uh, with the hero accepting a smaller victory in place of the bigger one that they had originally planned, or that we might have wanted. The hero may need to make compromises as well. You can also have the hero effectively become the villain's hostage, uh, which is definitely obviously what happens with Katniss and Peter uh, in Snow's system. Uh, now this particular one works very very well if you're writing a series and you are going to have a follow-up yeah Um, some people however might find it a little bit bitter if you only have it as a standalone but it does work very well in things like dystopian fiction or fiction which is meant to be a lot more tragic
1: i think originally the hunger games was sold as a one book
0: yeah
1: with You know, sort of like it has strong series potential, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So they contracted for the first book, but it did really well. And she'd left it open enough at the end that she could follow in with the next two books, which is why people say there's a difference in how the first book and the following two books are written. And I can kind of see their point. But I do think in terms of ideas, the way she left it, um, Katniss and Peter are still very much the possession of the system. All they've done is carved out a tiny, tiny bit of breathing space for themselves, but it's against all the odds because almost everyone, everyone bar one of them was supposed to die in the Hunger Games. And that's what that, that standoff at the end was about, was trying to force one of them to murder the other when they've been allies all the way through
0: yeah absolutely and in doing so basically just reinforce everything that already existed and really create this narrative of these aren't really people if that makes sense um and yes uh, and like i said this sort of the, the the hostage taking pie is very very effective for dystopian fiction where a larger kind of part is the horror of the system that can be created and just trying to survive within that system because it cannot be dismantled with, by one person alone but you can begin to chip away at it and when people chip away slowly slowly erosion can occur um yeah so yeah it's very very effective particularly in dystopian yeah so there we have it that is our dessert menu um which <laughs> one is your favorite uh to summarize everyone is going to have their own preference on ending um and despite this being obviously the menu that we can offer it's not an exhaustive list and there are more out there and variations and mix-ups and all sorts of horrific cocktails (laughs) absolutely yeah stay away from the horrific cocktails
1: (laughs) unless you know what you're really doing um in fact, we've only looked at seven other ways to have your hero triumph over desperate odds. I mean, this doesn't take into account all the other different kinds of endings and things there are out there in different genres. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So ultimately you've got to remember that endings are a very important part of any kind of satisfying meal. Uh, how many times have you read a brilliant book that had a flat ending and it just ruined it? or one that was a little bit too formulaic. The ending is kind of one of the most important structural, you know, for a whole book to stand up, it needs to have a strong structure. And uh, that structure does need to include a good ending. So you should really consider how you can create one of those and also consider ultimately what kind of story you are telling and in order to do that, what kind of ending do you need to have to complete the full picture? Absolutely. Do you have a particular preference of these seven
1: duels? Um, I think, I mean, looking at them, it wasn't until I really started thinking about these that I thought, oh, I've done that one and I've done that one. Mm. Um, I kind of like... Um, I do like the radical tactic change one, but simply because... I, I don't think that's one that I've really fully explored because there's a cleverness behind it and I always do like a clever plot twist. Yeah. Um, I love the villain in fighting, but I don't think I've used that at all. Mm. Um, I've never used the powerful ally, I don't think. And sacrifice, the sacrifice one, that's that's always going to be like a potential thing that happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny because I think... I of all of these in the books that i like to sort of read i i definitely like the radical tactic change and i really like the baked powerful baked powerful is probably one of my favorites the ones which i tend to not want to engage with or that tend to sort of actually really kind of leave me feeling a bit icky these are the desserts that i don't want um are uh, the the hostage taking at the end, I think it's just a little bit too too sour for me, um, and I actually tend to sort of not really like the sacrifice à la mode, um, though I think it depends on the story, uh, probably because it usually involves people sort of losing magical powers or stuff like that. And I just tend to be like, they've suffered enough. They've sacrificed (laughs) everything else. Can't you just let them have this as a happy thing? Why do you have to strip it all?" Yeah. I mean,
1: it's got to be the right thing. It can't just be sort of like, you feel like the author's got there and didn't know what to do. So again, the whole foreshadowing part of any recipe is really important. I do love the the creme of emerging superpower. I think there's a big wish fulfillment thing there for me. Mm Mm-hmm
0: yeah i completely agree um it just sorry when i say baked powerful ally I-, I actually did mean uh the emerging superpower i i mixed those two up um yes i do like that one as well i think that's probably my favorite so like as we say everyone has kind of got different sort of desires wishes when it comes to sort of endings um what about you guys? Which one of these desserts would you like to be served uh, with your, with your, your with book? Your, <laughs> <laughs> Do get in contact with us and let us know. We always love to hear from you. Now, uh, before we go, it is time for our di- uh, I'm. I swear, <laughs> I'm just not not able to speak today before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you have got one for us
1: yes uh this was actually recommended to me by uh, a listener of the podcast so thank you very much um, and uh, someone who uh, also sort of subscribed to my newsletter and and replied to one of my newsletters when i was feeling you know particularly rough after my my christmas misadventure yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is part of the Cthulhu Casebooks series by James Lovegrove. And the first book is called Sherlock Holmes and the Shadwell Shadows. Now, Madeline, I'm
0: pretty sure, is not a massive H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft fan. No, but the, this is the problem. I see sort of H.P. Lovecraft and I'm like, eh. And then I see Sherlock Holmes and I'm like,
1: mmm. on. <laughs> I think you would like it because even though you know it does lean on sort of the elder god aspect and you know there's mentions of Cthulhu and what have you in here um it is almost classic Sherlock Holmes except with Lovecraft in Monsters and it was an absolute scream it was amazing it was really really good
0: yeah that would be the thing is I do love the Sherlock Holmes formula so adding supernatural elements to it I mean I'm just I'm always going to be a sucker for that and I have seen it on the shelves and been sort of Umming and ahhing so now I think I'm actually going to have to go and pick it up because yeah I'm so intrigued <laughs>
1: well I borrowed the library book um sorry the audio book from the library and it was a really good audio book as well so I'm not going to spoilify the plot because if you've read a basic Sherlock Holmes story you'll know kind of where things are going if you've read any H.P. Lovecraft or heard any references to it then I think you can see how those two things might combine yeah. um, but I do want to say thanks very much Jess Mallory that was a brilliant suggestion i really enjoyed it and i'll totally read the rest of the series <laughs> highly recommend everyone else does
0: is it gory
1: no not especially see i don't think it's. Any i more don't gory.
0: trust jules because she she has different mileage <laughs> i
1: stuff. don't think it was any more gory than than say something like the hound of the baskervilles
0: okay all right i will definitely have to check it out though. Yeah. Um, wishing you luck guys <laughs> Jules really does have different mileage and on that nose uh, on that nose, on that, nose <laughs> on that note we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week
1: yeah thanks goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast